Welcome back to Portrait of an Editor. I am Francis Lombard. After a few years away, Joe Illich rejoins the podcast to talk about his work as executive editor for Heavy Metal. We cover a whole lot on this one, including when Joe first read Heavy Metal to what he would like to see more of in the magazine nowadays. So without further delay, here's Joe Illich, executive editor for Heavy Metal. Enjoy. Hey, Joe. Welcome back to Portrait of an Editor. In my perfect research, I completely forgot when the last time we talked, but in memory, I know it wasn't before you were working for Heavy Metal, and I know it probably was before COVID. So we're looking at three plus, probably around three years. That sounds about right. Yeah, the world, the comic book industry was significantly different. It was very different. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess today, in some of the research I was doing, there's congratulations in order because... It's your two-year anniversary, according to LinkedIn. Yes, it is. Can <laughs> so, you believe it? Thank you so much. So two years at heavy metal. I mean, I don't know. Have you gotten your fill of science fiction and naked women yet? <laughs> oh, I'm, ne- I'm never tired of those. <laughs> like, my fill will come when I'm in the grave. So <laughs> suffice it to say, I'm very cool to keep going with those and also throw in horror and fantasy because those are the three categories that you know, heavy metal really specializes in. And, you know, if you know heavy metal, then you know Tarna, right? Yeah, From the 1981 yeah. animated film. Those are pretty much part of my DNA. I remember discovering heavy metal in high school when I went to the High School of Art and Design. And I think it was, while well, I was in the 10th grade, I was 13 years old and I had an exclusive diet of Marvel and DC Comics. And one of my friends showed me Heavy Metal Magazine. And the first thing I saw was, um, it was an, it was an installment of Ranksarox by Liberatore. And I was like, what is this? Because it didn't look like anything I had ever seen. It didn't look like George Perez or John Byrne or any of those things. And so that was really the beginning for me. And, you know, I was 13, so... I, I, I didn't even dare think of buying heavy metal because I knew I would have to sneak it into the apartment. And if my mother found it, I would be in trouble, right? So I didn't become a, I would say, a purchaser of heavy metal until probably after college when I went to the School of Visual Arts. But I do remember watching the 1981 animated film, but not in the theaters. I saw it on VHS tape. Yes, yeah. I think, yep, that's where I saw it. You know, I remember it was... In the theaters, when they used to do midnight shows, it was on a rotation and that. Oh, wow. But, but I was just too young to go. I would see it, you know, flip through, and the newspaper would have the listing of, like, you know, the next town over where the movie theaters were. But they were, it was heavy metal at night and, uh, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Exactly. I think it may be Mad Max, um, you know, but like the usual stuff that would rotate at the midnight sh- screenings. But I know heavy metal would pop up and maybe there was like drive-ins that would run dust to dawn oh, and, man. and dust in me- heavy metal would be one of those. So in the summers when I was a kid, you know, let's go to the drive-in, let's go to the drive-in because that's, I think that's where I saw a lot of the movies and heavy metal would pop up at some of these sleazier drive-ins i guess my parents, are, <laughs> parents aren't like we're not going to that one we'll go to the one you know in the town over i think i remember seeing you know, like the lord of the rings of ralph baskey lord of the oh, rings man. showing you know? yeah you're 
you're talking about like some really seminal films and animation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just great stuff. Now, what was the thing that you worried about with your mom if she found you with a copy of Heavy Metal? What was it that oh, you worried about? Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> because... Well, so my mom, <laughs> my mom, you know, she grew up Christian. She was born in Jamaica. And as a young girl, um, up until I think like 16, 17, she grew up in Nassau, Bahamas. So, you know, my mom was not like hardcore, but she was definitely not what I would call um, advanced in the way that she would be comfortable with me seeing things that just openly engaged sexuality before I was 17 years old, right? I think my mother's standards were in perfect concert with the MPAA standards of Mm -hmm. when it would be appropriate for me to see things involving sex and nudity. And just to let you know, it's still on our queue to have a talk about the birds and the bees. We haven't totally scheduled that yet, but that's still coming. Oh, oh, good. At least, you know, you guys are eventually going to get to it. After. Well, yeah, I know. Come on. That's, that's an important one. You don't want to miss it. You can you can postpone it as much as you want, but eventually you're going to get there. Maybe after you get your AARP card or something. I, don't mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. I think that would be perfect timing for it. Just like opens up your schedule a bit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, my story, like at Humanoids, when I got hired at Humanoids, I also started working, the a new accountant got um, started working. And um, she was a little prim and proper and at humanoids, they have these huge, massive, you know, pieces of art, like Juan Jimenez and mm-hmm. whoever Mobius, but of course they're all, you know, the topless women. And no she's like, first month, she's like, Oh, it's a little weird walking into this place you know, <laughs> with all the nakedness. And then about three months in, she's like, I don't even notice it anymore. <laughs> it's just, yep. it's just there. And that's the reality of it. That's the reality. <laughs> I'm actually impressed that she adjusted. I thought you were going to tell me she bolted. No, no, she, she settled right in with everybody sort of like became everybody really. She was, I think she was the last like key into sort of the group sort of gelling basically. Yeah. Yeah. She, she got what we were, you know, what humanoids was doing, what heavy metal was all about. She actually was, became, she was even more curious about the history and looking at the art and what, you know, um, what it was about and sort of how it was seen as high end instead of just Mm -hmm. growing up, probably reaching, you know, she read Archie, she knew Spider-Man, you know, and Batman and all that stuff, but this was a little different. So no doubt when you see stuff like the original humanoids material, the original metal Harlot magazines, heavy metal, it totally changes your perspective on what's possible with sequential art. And that's what it did for me. I experienced heavy metal before I experienced its, what we'll call its offshoot um, epic magazine by Marvel before I experienced um, Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz's Electra Assassin um, before Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean's I mean, anything, violent cases, Black Orchid, right? Like, Heavy Metal was the first magazine periodical to show me painted sequential art. What about Miller's Ronin? Do you think that Heavy Metal prepped you for that? Or how did you react to when Ronin came out? So I'll tell you, when Ronin came out, I believe Ronin came out in 1983. I wasn't ready for it, right? I wasn't that person yet i didn't like 
at that time when I was in high school, the the most advanced thing that I was really engaging was crisis on infinite earths, right? When I started going to college at School of Visual Arts, they had a library. And unlike any library I had ever seen at the time, SVA's library had graphic novels. And that was where I reconnected with Ronin and read the whole thing. And that was where I reconnected with Watchmen and read the whole thing. Heavy Metal prepared me for Ronin in the sense that those kinds of European styles and influences were not totally alien to me. But in terms of engaging, you know, mature content or experimental and daring content in the graphic novel form, that came during my early college years at School of Visual Arts. So how does that all reconnect to you being executive editor for Heavy Metal? I know this is a large question. Um, yeah. For the last, last two years. I mean, so flash forward to where you are. When you sit down to sort of look at stuff, are you thinking about the young Joe and what would light up a new reader's head? I mean, I know I'm all over the place with the question, but... No, no, no. It makes perfect sense. So I will tell you this. The same way that when I looked at heavy metal upon first contact, when I was a student in high school, and no matter what page I looked at, the art was beautiful or the art was distinctive or it was different than anything I was seeing in American superhero comics, pretty much. That's what you know. I think about as executive editor. That's what our team thinks about, right? When we're thinking about the magazine, that number one, no, if you were to drop, if 10 people were to drop Heavy Metal Magazine on the ground, no matter which pages it opens to, it's beautiful art, right? And then no two stories should look alike. So with every story, you're getting a different aesthetic experience. In that way, it does connect to really my first exposure with it. Right now, the market has changed. I, I honestly feel like this is a golden age of comic books. There are more comic books. There's more amazing stories. There's more unique visions. Um, superheroes are not dominating the direct market or the North American market. It's so many other genres. And so it's really about maintaining a high standard and just trying to have fun and experiment with different things that you wouldn't normally do. So for example, our 45th anniversary issue is coming up in April, issue 316. There's something that we're going to do with a Tarna story. I don't want to spoil it because our publicist would choke me from afar. It wasn't something that I had intended when I originally commissioned and envisioned the story. But then when I saw the art, something did occur to me. And I said, you know what? This is perfect as is. So that'll be something that when it pops up in the magazine, that'll make that story different from any other story in the magazine, but it's going to be amazing regardless. And it's good to be able to, to have the creative freedom, to have the editorial freedom to do that, to pivot from an original plan in response to the artwork. 
can you hint at the art team? Can you mention who the team is, that the creative team? I can. <laughs> okay. I can tell you that it involves a well-beloved character for heavy metal fans, and leave it at that. What about Milestone? Now, your work there, was there any discussion about heavy metal, the landscape that, yeah, Milestone was touching upon, or what, you know, was there an influence of heavy metal there of where we can go storytelling-wise? Because I think of, like, the, uh, what is it? Uh, I always screwed up the name, but I did read the uh, ex zombie with the technology. Zombie, yes. Yeah, zombie with the technology. And, you know, it just like thinking about, you know, ap- uh, Afrofuturism aspects of Milestone and, and everything. Um, you know, was there a heavy, was there any discussion about heavy metal or influence about heavy metal? Were people referring to that or, you know, or is it just, you know, people are just doing their thing and just letting their influences, you know, boil, you know, underneath ferment underneath i feel like it was indirect i don't remember any conversations about heavy metal in particular i can tell you that dennis cowan one of the founders of milestone and he was creative director one of the great things about milestone is all of the founders had an open door policy so their offices tended to be open so whenever you would go to dennis's office he was usually drawing when he was illustrating You know, you saw his library of books. And one of the artists who he really admired was Tope. When you think about an artist like Tope, when you think about Mobius, right, those standards definitely made their way, I think, into our standards in terms of milestone aspired and did succeed in being as revolutionary to culture and comics as heavy metal was to artistic aesthetic and mature content of comics. And, you know, it was funny, like I mentioned Bill Sienkiewicz and Electra Assassin a little while ago. Yeah. I still remember the day that Bill walked into the Milestone offices and he did this amazing painting. I think it was 36 by 48. And it was basically a painting of the major characters of the Milestone universe. And he did it for a window poster. It was printed as a window poster. It said Milestone on sale here. And it was for retailers to have in their stores. And this painting was just exquisite. Mm. And the way he depicted the Milestone characters made me think about heavy metal it made me think about that standard, right? And if you look at that piece today, that still holds up today. So that's part of what heavy metal has to do. Heavy metal has to endure the times and that comes from quality, right? A friend of mine, she told me this, I'll never forget it, I'll take it to the grave. It's, it sounds simple, but it's really profound. She said, gimmicks don't last, quality endures. And I truly believe that something that is amazing is going to be amazing 10 years from now, 20 years from now. It may be amazing in a different context. It may not be amazing in a vacuum, but it's still going to be amazing. Yeah. And you think about the history of comics, it's littered with, you know, gimmicks, you know, forgotten gimmicks. 100%. But 
But you think you, the quality of certain things here, we are talking about heavy metal, which has had up and downs and probably has experimented with gimmicks at times. But we're talking about, you know, the influence it's had, you know, for decades upon us and just how it sort of hangs on to our head. And, you know, and the, some of the books we've talked about, which are all just, you know, the the quality of those books, you know, Ronin Absolutely. and everything, you know, Absolutely. coming back, you know. And you're looking at, you're talking about, you know, heavy metal, the existence of heavy metal leads to the existence of vertigo. Yeah. Right. The existence of vertigo leads to the existence of image. Right. So you can find the straight line and the branches from when heavy metal broke ground in the States in 1977 until now. Right. 45 years later, you can track it. And you understand how it was a pebble in the pond and we're still seeing the ripple effects. When I, you know, thinking about heavy metal, for some reason in my head, it comes, you know, Howard Chaikin's uh, American flag pops oh, up. Oh my goodness. As something that is, a, could be, is, you know, a ref, you know, part of that wave, you know, that you're talking about, you know, the next stage, you know, what right. first comics was doing, even Mike Grell's John Sable. Uh, even though That's that doesn't right. feel like a heavy metal story, but it's a, a genre, you know, but it's a adult storytelling, uh, you know, with a, you know, sort of tongue in cheek sense of humor at times, but also a very serious adult storytelling, especially when you think about Sable's origin and then, and then what he's doing. And shoot, I he constantly bringing this up with my girlfriend about the John Sable going to um, Idaho to deal with extremists and yeah. these guys. This is, I was reading this stuff in the eighties and here we are, you know, it, listen, serious listen, the, stuff today. The world has just caught up to American flag. You realize yeah. it, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, we, we just <laughs> caught up to the future that Howard predicted. Right. And mm -hmm. showed us so long ago. And, you know, another thing about, like heavy metal and about art in comics. And I don't know how much this is part of the collecting culture anymore, but your level of geek cred was directly connected to the collections you had, the artists that you admired, what you were reading, right? So you had to be reading Doug mentioned Bill Sienkiewicz's Moon Knight, <laughs> for example, right? Um, if you knew American Flag, you were you you went up a notch, right? Because you were sophisticated on a different level. If you were aware of Alan Moore and Gary Leach's Miracle Man, right? Which would then I think go on to eventually Stephen Bissett, right? But these illustrators, knowing them was part of being a collector, right? Like the high art standards, even in Marvel and DC Comics, again, Marvel would create Epic Magazine and capture and try to capture the lightning in a bottle that heavy metal had. And they would have various black and white magazines like Deadly Hands of Kung Fu and Savage Sword of Conan. And they would have amazing illustrators like Alfredo Alcala and Rudy Nebrez, right? So these are the kinds of things that were just happening, these artistic movements. And there was a bounty of amazing illustrators. It, 
And it was all in the magazines. I mean, a lot of it was in the magazine because I got towards, yes. I was an Epic magazine collector, but there was also Bizarre Adventures. And Bizarre Adventures, that's right. A, in a, like, it, let's do our violent issue. So they had a, the violence oh issue. Oh my God, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> and I feel like, like, could that I even be like done today? <laughs> no. That was, I think that was issue 31 of with Bizarre Adventures. Not, with the woman yeah. with opening up her yeah. trench coat. Yeah. Because 27 was the X-Men issue. There was a Phoenix story, an Iceman story, and a Nightcrawler story. And 28 had an Electra story that Frank Miller did. Yeah, okay. Issue 31 was the violent issue. Oh, man, you're taking me back. But it was all magazine stuff. because the, you yes. know, And I guess because, and you can go, I was at a, a convention the last, I think, maybe the second to last convention, but a bunch of the editors had worked on that. And they reminded me about it because, one, you could get away with, you weren't under the censorship. So that's right. They, you know, I think it was uh, Archie Goodwin's maybe way of getting around things and just Marvel way of getting around stuff. Uh, and it was black and white. So I feel I'm on a black and white kick when it right now. And it feels like there's a, a cl I feel closer to the art or to the film with black and white. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, a like, um, I just, to a side, I just saw Nightmare Alley, the black and white version. Oh wow! How and I'm was that? I really enjoyed it, and I'm a fan of the original. And I, yeah. I need to go back and get the book. But I'm a big noir buff. But I'm sitting there, and I'm not a huge uh, Guillermo del Toro fan because it, it sounds like there's a lot of um, the visuals sometimes overwhelm the story. Even though Blade Two, I think is I could just sit and watch whenever it's on TV. I just think it's amazing, mm -hmm. but. I'm watching this and I'm like, you know, if I'm seeing this in color, some of the sequences, I'm like, I, I just would have been removed. I'm like, that doesn't feel like carnival of the 1930s. Right. You know, depression right. era. It's too fancy. But in black and white, it, it brought it down. And then as somebody was saying in an article I was reading, it made it grittier. It, the black and white might have hurt when he moves to the city on the next stage of his life, but it really brought the grittiness and sort of depression era of the carnival um, in the black and white version. And now I don't even think I really want to see the original color version stuff because it just, I don't know, it just really got under my skin, which I think was part of the expense, experience and why it made a good experience and why I feel like it was the most, it, I guess, the best experience I've had with the Guillermo del Toro movie, really, ever. I mean, I understand, yeah. you know, I understand him as, you know, a visual filmmaker is amazing. He's out of this world, but I just, I'm left cold a lot of times with him. And, but at this time I felt I engaged with the characters, but getting back to the magazine stuff and getting maybe the magazine, the format, because as I think I was reading and research, you know, just the quality that heavy metal was, and then you look at Epic matching that quality and mm -hmm. then the ability of storytelling and the mature storytelling, even with Marvel characters in the black and white magazines, Bizarre Adventures, all the stuff, you know, you even had Dracula had a magazine, Conan had a magazine. They were able to sort of try to still reach out to the adult audience. There was that connection, you know, or that attempt to Absolutely. provide stories. But it just, I think, um, I don't know where I'm going with this right now, but just an elevation of the art form beyond just, you know, comic books for kids 100 percent. always Definitely. been there since you know always been there it heavy metal helped set it off 
And I think people want, you know, you know, Marvel definitely ran with it when they opened, when heavy metal opened the doors, when they, you know, yes, they did. And like you said, that was under Archie Goodwin and I believe Joe Duffy mm. at the time. And we actually had an article in one of our recent issues about Epic Magazine and heavy metal. And Joe Duffy was kind to, you know, make some, you know, comments in the article, which was great. So that kind of analysis is interesting. And I do remember really being attracted to those magazines. I think my dad, you know, when I was a kid, my dad wasn't really into the superheroes. He was really into like Deathlock, Scalp Hunter, Sergeant Rock. But I believe I remember him regularly purchasing Savage Sword of Conan, right? And I think it was because it was a magazine. It was more mature. The fact that it was black and white spoke to the kind of pulp entertainment that he probably grew up on, right? And when I think about that now, I'm thinking about Barry Windsor Smith's Monsters mm-hmm. that was put out by Fantagraphics, right? And that story is perfect in black and white, right? Like that story shouldn't be colored and when you're looking at the, you know, the books that IDW is doing with their artist editions, mm-hmm. right? You know, I would love to see Barry Windsor's Smith's Weapon X big in black and white. You know what I mean? So, yeah, the appreciation of art, showing art at a certain scale, that's one thing that's really great about our magazine is that it's bigger. Mm-hmm. Right. So the art is larger. Um, it has more room to breathe. We like to play with bleeds. So that bigger trim size allows us to have some fun, which is really great. And just, you know, the validity of the magazine, you know, heavy metal magazine has endured through all these changes in the industry, through the disappearance of newsstand distribution which informed how the market acted and what kind of packaging for content the market made back in the 70s and the 80s. But Heavy Metal Magazine is still here, right? And that speaks to its distinction. That speaks to Heavy Metal as an iconic brand. And so, you know, actually kind of looping it back I think about leaving an impression on anyone who picks up an issue. You know, that's something we all do. Like the entire team really just wants to keep upping the ante. So when new management took over, you know, Matthew Medney, the CEO, and David Irwin, the publisher, the new team really came together and issue 300 was like the new starting point. Yeah. Like the resurgence of the magazine began with that issue and you can see it right and the fun is just trying to keep you know up the ante or do something different every issue and that that's part of the excitement of doing an anthology month after month you mentioned your father and i know tim seeley in an editor in, in like issue 102 and in an editorial talks about his parents being working class and reading comics and sort of the magazine did you guys ever talk about this? I mean, you and we talked about your mom, you know, might having an issue seeing you bring in heavy metal. But 
were your parents an influence on your comic book reading or was it something, you know, you just came about and they said, at least he's reading, you know, and understanding what, um, you know, that how comics would eventually just, or got, they were happy that you were reading and saw that you evolved into just somebody who enjoyed reading. Um, because no, it's, it's a great question. And I'll tell you, you know, I'm always appreciative of the fact that my mother supported me reading almost anything, right? Mm. Um, you know, I was always, um, I'll say an above average reader. My mother would always tell people how in the third grade I was reading out of the New York Times. So my reading comprehension was always above average. And my mother, I feel, nurtured that, right? reading comic books was reading and I was a voracious reader. And so I think from her perspective, as long as it didn't jam up my academics, then it was fine. And we had a regular ritual where every Friday evening she would take me to the newsstand and she would buy herself soap opera magazines and she would buy me comic books. Mm -hmm. So her soap operas were all my children in one life to live. My soap operas were Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes and Justice League of America, right? So she was really supportive in that way. And my dad, interestingly enough, he didn't really feed my comic book reading. He gave me this book. Now, I was in the third grade at the time. He gave me a book. It was, um, I think it was called The Western Art of Frederick Remington. Frederick Remington. Um, was a painter well-known for depicting the West. And as a third grader, I really didn't have any interest in it. I was like, okay, I'm going to keep it because my dad gave it to me, but I don't really care about this. I don't care about Westerns, and this style isn't doing anything for me. But later on, I think I got, later on I understood that he was nurturing the artistic side. And I'm so glad that I kept that book and it's something that I treasure to this day. And so I feel like my parents came at it from two angles. One of it, one did it to nurture my reading and the other one did it to feed my artistic interest. And they both came together really well. <laughs> looks like it, you know, now you're an editor at comics. <laughs> it looks like hey, it's made up. <laughs> listen, you, could, you couldn't have told me because... You know, until my until Milestone, I didn't know what an editor was. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what an editor was until Milestone. I would always see the credit in comics, but I never cared about it. For me, it was like writer, penciler, inker, and maybe colorist. You know, I knew the name Glynis Oliver, and then I think she got married and became Glynis Wine. Um, I knew the name Tajana Wood. Um I would later on know Steve Olive, Tom Ziuko, but I didn't know what an editor was until Milestone and until Dwayne McDuffie showed. And what was your, what did, what was the first day? When did you, you know, what was it that they showed you that you realized, okay, this person contributes to the, you know, to what a comic book is? Yeah, that's tricky. Um. Wow, I couldn't tell you the first day it sunk for yeah. me. I could tell you the first time that thinking about story from an editorial perspective did it. And it was 
it was one time, you know, the milestone offices used to be these three big lofts and they were all connected. And you came and, in, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. you came in, what was your focus when you came in? Was it as a writer or artist? When I originally joined Milestone as an intern, my goal was to become a writer. Okay. So you're looking right? at story and comics from that POV. Exactly. Um, and what happened was one time Dwayne just gathered a bunch of us together, you know, like some interns and some of the younger employees. That's Dwayne and McDuffie. He, Dwayne yeah. McDuffie. Okay. Yeah. And he just, you know, threw out one of his pearls of wisdom and he and he said, listen, he said, he said, some he set up a scenario where basically there was a rooftop and there was a criminal on a rooftop and he had a someone hostage at gunpoint. And he presented three options, Daredevil, Punisher, and Spider-Man. And he said, what would these characters do? And we all had different answers. And he said, okay, one thing to remember is if you have any two of these characters solving the problem in the same way, you're not writing story, you're writing plot, right? Because Daredevil, Punisher, and Spider-Man are three fundamentally different people. So their solutions are going to be fundamentally different. And that was the first time that I heard about story from an editorial perspective. And so I think that was the beginning for me. And that was before I was in editorial. I started in the business department and I transitioned over to editorial two years after getting to Milestone. But that moment... That was, I think that was my first experience with Dwayne McDuffie understanding his genius, you know, and I'll never forget it. Because he's talking character driven. And it's also something in an interview I read in prepping for this that you were talking about, especially working for Marvel and DC. You're an editor is the sort of the guardian of um, the, the, these characters, you know, yes. the, you know, that are the lifeblood of these companies. And these companies, for good or bad, really sort of, you know, in, keep the company, you know, the American comic book industry, they have an influence on us. You know, they, keep, you know, they get asses in seats, you know, yep. and, and people walking into stores. But he's talking character driven. And I remember in animation, I think I might even had this conversation with Dwayne when I had a few times I had a chance to meet him talking about character driven and animation character driven and we heard always heard that a lot throughout pitches and stuff and your comment really sort of nails it what you know what Dwayne says in that experience that you had really simplifies it and is a thing i think an editor has to remember especially working for the the big 2 because 100%. that really you can have a you know, the end results can be the same, but how do you get there? And that's all because of the character and the per the personalities that they are and the history they are and everything. And that really, yeah, that's what it is. It's, and, and that's what I think keeps people coming back to these characters. It's not, you know, defeating the bad guy. It's how they defeat the bad guy or how their foibles are used against them or how their strengths, you know, sort of overcome, you know? Right. And I think as editors, Part of what we have to do is, in the caretaking of those characters, understand their strengths 
and how their conflicts make them stronger. So one thing that I've, you know, you hear different variations on this through the years. You hear people say, well, Superman is so boring, right? No, because he has all these powers, he can do anything. So what's interesting about him? I'm like, okay, well, here's two things that are automatically interesting about Kal-El. He's an orphan, and he believes in the sanctity of life. Now, you could say the exact same thing for Batman, and you should. Mm -hmm. So, right? You start with those two things. That gives you a lot of possibilities, right? Kal-El is an immigrant, right? Kal-El lost his entire... He became entirely disconnected from his heritage. What he has left of his heritage are the archives that were sent with him in the ship and his garb, right? So he was raised by an adoptive family with those values sent out into the world, right? So the story of Kal-El is the ultimate immigrant story. And that never becomes obsolete. And that is very interesting, right? And so those are the strengths, right? Superman isn't boring because he's all powerful. Superman is interesting because with all that power, he is amazingly humane. <laughs> he's interesting because you can't get Superman to take a life and you can't get Superman to be cynical, which is pretty damn tough. Yeah. Right? To, to not become cynical in the face of everything. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, you know, speaks to what makes the character interesting. So that's the thing. I think, you know, part of it is we look at these potential conflicts as opportunities to show the character's strengths. I almost don't even like to think in terms of strengths and weaknesses, right? But just really go to, you know, what's your character? What is it that you most want? And what is it that you most fear? I, I promise to get back to heavy metal, definitely, because of what we left dangling. That's okay. It all connects. <laughs> but as an editor, and you talk about being the advocate for the creators, but as an editor, do you find, especially with a character like that, and you know, talk, you know, you were an editor on Batman too, with somebody who's, you know, every story's been told about Batman, but once, as you just hinted at, you know, Batman and Superman are orphans, and then they go different ways. Right. Do you have to really sit and push your creators at times? I mean, be very, very vigilant about the upsides they have with these characters. Just what you were talking about, Superman is like Superman is not a boring character. It's really diving deep enough and really challenging yourself. Did you, as an editor, because of what Dwayne had said about the rooftop scenario and stuff, found yourself like going, not letting up on the, the creators you, you know, they're on the books and really making sure they're taking advantage of this treasure trove they have in front of them? Oh, yeah. Like, as a Batman editor, I had to help protect Batman. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a story that I never told publicly, which is. There's a Grant Morrison Justice League storyline with the Shaggy Man, and Grant Morrison wrote a version in which the Shaggy Man was choking Huntress to death, and Batman picks up a big-ass gun and shoots off 
Shaggy Man's arm. And if you know Batman, you know that guns are anathema to Batman. Mm -hmm. You know why? So I brought that up, and it led to a conversation with Denny O'Neill, who was Batman group editor at the time, Dan Rastler, who was Justice League um, editorial goomba, and Grant Morrison. And the change was that Batman threw batterings with explosives, right? But I really thought about the character and said, this character doesn't pick up a gun, right? A gun is the most vile, evil thing imaginable to him, right? So, yeah, sometimes you have to protect the character from a bunch of different directions. And listen, you know, to some degree, I knew that I was doing that at some kind of peril because it's like, hey, like, in some sense, who am I to say this? But who I am is one of the caretakers of this character who is the most profitable character uh-huh. of the collective intellectual property that is the DC universe. So, yeah, and the thing is, through challenges, we find opportunities, right? So there was an opportunity to still communicate the idea, but to just rejigger your head and do it in a way that was totally in character, right? You get people to challenge themselves. And from a creative standpoint, challenges are exciting. It's the sort of the trap of the first idea where you think, oh, I got the great solution, you know, and that was the first thing that come into your head. But then you, when you really challenge that, first idea that it's like, wait a minute, it falls apart in a way, you know, and there is always, I think in, you know, screenwriting, they talk about it, but I think in comics is challenge that first idea all the time, especially when something like that doesn't really jive with Batman. You know, I would think anybody writing would be like, wait, guns are not the thing, you know, you know. And I think, and I think he was actually trying to make a point. I think he was, actually trying to show that Batman would pick up a gun to prevent Huntress from getting killed. And, and I, I see. That. Yeah. Okay. But, but, but again, yeah, that, you know, again, it's Daredevil, Punisher, um, Spider-Man, Spider-Man right? Yeah. So that would be a Punisher solution. That's not a Batman solution. Right. And yeah, when you talk about, you know, challenging the first idea, right? You know, I think part of it is kind of like, you know, there's this thing in Buddhism that um, attachment is pain, right? The attachment to ideas is the agony <laughs> of, of our existence, right? And it's being able to let go of the single idea and open yourself up to other possibilities. That's where you know freedom that's where you know some liberation. And I definitely think that applies to creativity. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to heavy metal. Okay. <laughs> let's, the sim- uh, a simple question for you sure. is, what is the executive editor for Heavy Metal Magazine? What, what does that, your role as executive ev- editor uh, consist of? You talked about it earlier about, you know, 
putting, you know, designing a magazine and, and stuff, but how do you define your job? And you've been at it for what, two years, I think now, or almost right. two years as executive yeah. editor. Yep. Okay. Just it, just it. Yeah. Almost. Cause right. When I started with the company, it was as co-managing editor. Yeah. And then after a few months I was promoted to executive editor, um, you know, Matthew Medney and David Irwin had that faith in me that I could go to the next level for the company and I'll always be grateful. And so, you know, my job has a number of aspects. So one of it is the magazine, right? We look at the magazine and we have the magazine mapped out almost a year in advance. And because it's an anthology, there's different stories and different serials. So part of what I have to do is on a daily basis, look at the magazine from a 10,000 foot view and move things around as necessary and look at stories that are ending an opportunity for new stories to begin. Look at the content that we have in each issue from a vertical standpoint, the content that we have going across the year in a horizontal standpoint and making sure that we are fulfilling the promise of the three genres that are expertise, science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and additionally making sure that we have short stories, that we have um, imported stories that are translated into the English language for the first time, like we did last year with Juan Jimenez's segments, which was a great honor, right? Um, so that's part of it for the magazine. Another part of it is, you know, quality. So making sure that the quality exists at every level. So with myself as executive editor, we have two editors, um, Morgan Rosenblum, who is also our managing editor, and then Fabrice Sapolsky, um, a veteran of humanoids, who really works primarily in finding the global stories and bringing them to heavy metal to be translated into English for the first time. And so working with them, making sure everything's running on schedule, making sure that the quality is good and asking them, what do you need? How can I help, you know, within the organization? And we have weekly discussions. We have a large editorial meeting um, every Wednesday, and then we have a micro core editorial meeting every Monday. So that's a part of it. And then another part of it is talking with the CEO, Matthew Medney, and the publisher, David Irwin, about thinking for different things to do with the magazine, different things to do with our different comic book series, because we have comic book series now. Heavy Metal is doing more comic book series, I think, than ever before in the history of the company. And so I'm also the co-guardian of the IP, of the various IP of the company, the primary one of which is Tarna, right? So one thing, you know, I've said at the company a number of times is Tarna is our Batman, right? She's the tip of the spear and of that level of importance, right? Her visual, she's there in the 1981 animated film that is the benchmark for so many people in our culture, for so many different generations. And so Tarna is of high importance, right? And so 
it's interesting, these different things that I was saying about, you know, working on Batman at Milestone, they definitely had to come over when I helped relaunch Tarno, right? We really had to think about, okay, what's, what are the core things that people identify with about the character? And then how can we go further, right? And so how can we bring her into the 21st century while also connecting to that iconic representation that you saw in the 1981 animated film? And I think we did a great job. You know, Stephanie Phillips is an amazing writer. So many great artists, Patrick Zerker, Christian Rosado, Al Barrio Nuevo, colorist, letterers. It really was a team effort. It was a company effort. And so, you know, it really comes down to those three things. It's the 10,000-foot organizational view. It's quality control and working with the editors. And it's IP management, and the IP management is in story, is in the character bibles, and in that way, I work closely with the publisher and chief creative officer, David Irwin, and then I also do line editing. I do direct editing on various stories in the magazine and for various series that the company puts out, including Tarna and Colder. So it's kind of like those three layers to the job. Now, with an anthology, in my limited experience, like in putting uh, relaunching uh, Metal Hermont for Humanoids uh, out of LA, is that it's a lot of work. And, Hell yes. And you guys, after issue 300, um, went monthly. And yes. my first one question I had to ask is how do you guys pull it off? Because I mean, we've, I've had this conversation before about the extra work you bring on to an anthology, you know, with a regular comic, you know, you got one team you're dealing with. You guys are probably, I mean, you uh, you're a uh, typical heavy metal magazine is about 160 pages. And, 144 right now. Yes. Oh, 144. Okay. So you have 144 pages and then what, maybe half a dozen stories. Yeah, it could on. be anywhere from like six to 10 stories. So that's yeah. the thing. You know, people feel like, oh, it's one magazine. It's like, it's kind of like 10 it's mini 10 magazines, magazines. Yeah. right? And so part of that is distributing the work among the editorial team. And part of that is really having a lot of different stories in production so that when one serial ends, then another one will begin. No matter where that is in the rotation, some serials are bi-monthly, right? Mm -hmm. Some serials are monthly. So serials work on different frequencies. You know, one of the things that we're really fortunate about is because it's heavy metal, a lot of creators want to work with us, yeah. right? So we get some of the craziest pitches, and that's great, right? This is a place where you should feel like you can be unshackled, right? And so for people to have that kind of freedom, to give them that, to work with them on different ideas, which will, you know, be shared ownership ideas, or to say some to someone, listen, you have a crazy Tarnish story, just do a 12-page Tarnish story, do whatever you want, right? As long as it fits in line with how we're basically depicting Tarnish. So we will give them a lot of prep material so they can become familiar with Tarna in her present version, but that's part of how it's done. 
And, but really it's, you know, it's also maintenance, right? It's also looking at the status of things day by day, week by week, because real life happens, chaos happens, the pandemic happens, COVID-19 yeah. happens, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, I know. And so you have to allow for those kinds of possibilities when you schedule things and you have to allow yourself the flexibility to say, okay, we were originally going to launch this in May, let's launch it in June. And let's take another serial and launch it in May, right? So again, that goes to the 10,000 foot view of the year long grid of the magazine. But you're, I mean, are you, I mean, the magazine, you're looking at a year long, but would you think some of the stories you're out there with, especially when you're <clears throat> running, uh, serializing something that you're might even be further out to have that flexibility of being able to, if, if something comes up of shifting a story in and out, um, are you almost a year and a half or almost two years out at times? Because I know some it really varies. Time. It yeah. depends because we have so many things happening at the same time that some of them will not see print until Q1 or Q2 of 2023. But if they're in production and for some reason we feel like, hey, you know what? This is so far along we'd like to kickstart it earlier, then we'll do that, right? So again, to have that flexibility is part of the fun and it's part of the challenge, of course, of just managing the whole thing. So, you know, it really comes down to, you know, good teamwork. And so having people that you trust means that you know that the workload as it is, you'll be able to manage it, right? And so that's really important. It is necessary to have people that you trust as part of the team. And right now, you know, our editorial team, the three of us are at the core, myself, um, Fabrice Apolsky and Morgan Rosenblum. And then as you extend outward, we have Keith Champagne, who's the editor of our virus line. We have um, an editor for special projects. and you know, depending upon the nature of things, we might bring in a guest editor to do a certain serial. So again, you know, our operation allows for some flexibility and that really helps when you're talking about not only an anthology magazine, but then you're talking about the different comic book series that are going alongside. Does, um, what is it, Denton Tipton's Magma? Yes. Is that also part of the... <clears throat> uh, the consideration that, you know, how can something be launched out of the magazine and then move into this, into his line or. Yeah, that that would, that's different because Magma, as it was set up, was really a separate publisher mm. and heavy metal is basically like the conduit to the market. So in a way, funny enough to take it full circle, I would almost equate it with Milestone the same way Milestone created the content and DC handled publishing and distribution. Okay. Magma to Heavy Metal followed the same paradigm, the same model. I read that in trying to manage this in your experience with the first year is that you have, you know, seri you had serialized series that were going to run 12 and now you're bringing it down. You might be bringing it down to seven or eight. Why is that? So part of that is that if we do fewer chapters, then each chapter can have more pages. So I basically see. what that does is 
it goes against the idea of decompressed storytelling. You could have an 11 chapter story that's 10 pages each, right? Or you could have a seven chapter story that's 16 pages each, right? And so fewer chapters would give you more content per chapter. So being able to get a bigger dose of the story, I think that also allows the writers some fun. Writers, in my experience, want more pages instead of less pages. And when you're talking about serializing, every chapter has to compel you to come back to the next chapter. So the fewer installments are the fewer cliffhangers that you need to create and the more that you can do in any given installment. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's more fun for the creators. And then another thing is that, you know, when we have the serials completed, then we start going into collected editions. And that's really great. It's really great to see the story come together in that single package. And by doing that, introducing the stories to an audience who is not necessarily comprised of heavy metal magazine aficionados. Yeah. And I think one thing, like, uh, I just read an interview with Sean Phillips talking about the Reckless series. And oh, my goodness. Oh, how, man, I love Reckless. <laughs> how he's happy that he doesn't have to stop once a month to do a cover or create an it's artificial awesome. cliffhanger. You know, awesome. <laughs> you know I mean, just, the creativity, I, that the flow is, like, amazing for him. I cannot imagine the moment when they decided, you know what, let's just go OGN. And how that must have just taken this weight off of them. Yeah. Right? The idea to say, you know what, we've done the single issue format for so long. Let's flip it now and let's go original graphic novel. And just the way, you know, Reckless came out with this really good frequency. Mm -hmm. um, you look forward to an Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips graphic novel in a way that you didn't to an Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips comic book, right? Um, I need to pick up some of the other Reckless graphic novels. Admittedly, I only have the first one, but I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. I, I love that packaging. You know, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 70s and a teenager of the 80s, so I remember this television show called Stingray, which... I have to believe Ed and Sean have seen Stingray and Reckless kind of makes me think of Stingray in that way. So I really love it. And I love the characters. And, you know, it's about time that somebody decided just to steal again from the French. You know, you have heavy metal. Listen. And I'm like working at Humanoids. I'm like, oh, wow. Finally, 20 years later, where people are just doing graphic novels, just doing let's do a, you know, course these guys are doing three books a year instead of one book a year but i can i'll i'll live with it i mean it's not it's never been an issue of their production and ability to deliver that's right quality quality and quickly and a, a large amount of it and they're like what 200 pages a year probably easily you know and i think their projects together and it's interesting how it's interesting how the comic book creators pivoted because of change how because of how the pandemic transformed our society, they found the opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to be spending more time at home. That means I can produce more. That means that this project that had been gestating for eight years, but I never had the pocket of time to focus on it, I can do it now, right? And so, you know, 
what happened to our world led to reckless and led to, I guess, Substack and other things. So I just never cease to be impressed by the resiliency of comic book creators. But let's talk about resilience because you guys, basically Heavy Metal came in, the team that runs Heavy Metal now came in and started all these plans at when the pandemic kicked in. We're, That's right. We're about to hit our third March 13th. So, and hopefully Omicron's just going away and maybe we're lucky this year. Fingers crossed. But uh, we'll see. How did you, how did it affect you? Now, I'm, we're talking about the workload of putting an anthology together of a month. So it's not like you're going out to dinner every night now. You know, it's not like you, you, yeah, you're yeah. being distracted by, hey, let's go to a movie. Um, you're at home, you have a little extra time, you know, um, did you feel that it enabled you to sort of really take on this challenge of releasing a going monthly and releasing an anthology and a monthly and everything else that you're doing too? Let's, you know, on, right on top of I, that. I think it definitely helped. Um, and I feel like it gives you more time to seek out more projects, read more pitches, you know, for myself, in addition to being the executive editor of heavy metal. I'm also an editorial consultant. Um, so I consult with people on their pitches, their intellectual properties, and I work on different projects with different clients. So it just allowed me to, to connect with more people in the community and find people who wanted the guidance to sharpen their story and make it better, their ideas. And so that's a thing. It's like this really opened up time in a different way. And it helped create some new relationships that might not have been created in what I'm going to call the old world. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so that's been pretty interesting. And I think also for me personally, in the early part of the pandemic, my wife and I, you know, got COVID and we were like, we were off grid for two weeks. Um, quarantining and self-medicating and you know you just come back from something like that um, you're just raring to go because you know one of the things that happens in life is you just get caught in the mindset of the treadmill you know day in day out day in day out like the ennui of it right but being away for that time you know when I came back and I had my full energy back and I was able to re-engage. I re-engaged with a different type of enthusiasm and vigor. And so, yeah, like we kept going because people still needed stories, uh -huh. right? And we were able to change our operations to adjust to that. And that's where the virus line came from, which... Um, you know, was the brainchild of publisher David Irwin. And other than that, it's been really good. And look at what we're experiencing now. We're experiencing, you know, the global supply chain challenges. With that, we're still maintaining, you know, the monthly schedule of the magazine, which, you know, is something to be proud of. And it just really speaks to our commitment to old fans and new of the magazine, right? It's the magazine, I think 300, I remember, was delayed. 
I think it's something. There was a couple delays at the beginning. Yeah, what happened was 300, I think, ended up coming out two weeks later than originally planned. Oh, or actually what happened, I think some stores got it, other stores didn't. So it was really weird. I even remember on my Facebook, certain people were saying, oh, I didn't get my copies. How is that possible? Because they got their copies. So it was pretty weird. You know, it's wild. Heavy Metal is a kind of company where all the different departments touch one another. So we do have some kind of an awareness, even though I'm really focused on the content. I was really excited when that issue came out, though. But yeah, you're right. It was one week late for some retailers and I think two weeks late for other retailers. And then Diamond shut down, which I know that, you know, with newsstands and also nobody could go inside a bookstore at one point. Right. And to newsstand. And then everything came back. And um, and then the, the sales for comics took off. Remember, before the supply line issue in the last few months, the industry was experiencing huge bumps in sales. For the heavy metal readers, what we found is we did have an uptick in readers. And that actually happened, you know, we did a a price increase. We went from $9.99 to $13.99. And the thing is, for $13.99, you're getting so much value in heavy metal. And I talked to various retailers and they just said, you know, not only did that not change anything, but like more people got into heavy metal. And what we were finding is that more retailers were ordering our different comic book series, which was great. So that was very encouraging for us seeing that happening across the industry with different independent publishers as well. So, you know, with that, our response again was, keeping the quality up, right? If you're going to have that kind of extra attention on the magazine, on your books, then you have to earn maintaining that attention, right? So that's, you know, part of it. That's part of the reason why you have to maintain the standard because the market has become more competitive than ever. Yes, I was just having a conversation with an interview yesterday about Substack, you know, what's going to happen in 2022. And to look at Substack, and I got into it with the first launch and was following maybe about five creators, but I, I have to back off. I just there's other things I want to read. Is like yeah, there's so many options out there. Yeah, you know, when are we going to reach a saturation point where it there's not enough dollars or hours in the day for the consumer, for lack of a better term, or reader? to support all this in one way or another. Yep. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, that's an excellent question. I don't have the 10,000 foot view of the industry to answer it. What I would say is that I think what we are finding out is we're finding out how much people are committed to characters and how much people are committed to creators and how much people are collectors. I feel like part of what's happening is we're getting a very clear sense of which bucket someone falls in. And I think that's really important. So, you know, part of the migration of different creators to Substack is, you know, you look at something like Batman and you say, okay, 
James Tenney in the fourth left Batman. Joshua Williamson is now writing Batman. Did Batman go sideways or did Batman remain consistent? If Batman remained consistent, how come? You know, part of that I would imagine is because the standard of the artwork continued. That did not dip at all, even though it was an art change. And there's a commitment to the character, which DC Comics recognizes. And they're responding to that by having a certain segment of their publishing be Batman-centric, right? Um, we're able to see who are the people who are buying comic books simply for collecting covers by Art Germ or collecting covers by um, Jenny Frisone or Alan Hua or Puppeteer Lee. Um, and we're able to see, you know, who just really likes, I guess, certain creators, you know? So X-Men is very interesting, right? Because Jonathan Hickman was at the center of X-Men. He was writing or co-writing a lot of things. And he's now one of the creators that has gone mostly Substack. X-Men, though, seem to be very much on solid ground. They've invited, you know, new writers and other writers have elevated to more of a status in the structure. You know, Jerry Duggan has risen more. Benjamin Percy is taking Wolverine and expanding more horizontally. Steve Orlando is now one of the writers. So, you know, the whole section that is X-Men you know, seems to be consistently loved. And so that's very interesting too, I think, just to note this and learn this and what do we learn from it, right? So from my editorial point of view, part of what I see is that, okay, you know, the character is the foundation, the love of the character. So in approaching Tarna, yeah. No matter where we have Tarna, whether it's a one-shot, whether it's a Tarna series, whether Tarna appears in a short and heavy metal magazine, Tarna is a beloved character, and then we have to make sure Tarna is represented with quality, right? And that's kind of like the foundational approach. Now, part of the fun is you can invite different creators to do it, but you know that as long as it's Tarna and as long as it's good, people will follow it. So. These are the kinds of things that we learn just looking at the industry, looking at um, these changes in terms of the consumption, um, market changes. It's, it's pretty educational. And, you know, it behooves us, I think, to just see what's happening around us instead of being so singularly focused on what we're doing. Now, is Tarna... I came back to heavy metal around 294. A friend of mine gave me a really old heavy metal sort of torn up to have Mobius. And I'm like reading it. I'm like, why am I not picking this up at the newsstand? Was Tarna something that heavy metal took advantage of? Because whenever I hear heavy metal, typically it's about the creators that were there. So in you and earlier just mentioned it's, you know, character, creator, and uh, collector. So um, was it sounded like when the new team team came in that Tarna was a decision to bring up that character. And one of the things, the downside of an anthology is you don't have the character, the love of the character usually um, 
you know, having the readers, driving the readers towards the book. It's more about, you know, the creator and stuff like that. So if a creator's not there, you know, you might lose some readers because, or you might gain some readers if another creator is. So it fluctuates greatly, but a yep. character is a lot more consistent because it was that. Now, do you remember previously before the new team that was Tarna or was this a decision like, let's bring, really bring her back, make her be part of the, uh, um, what heavy metal's about, or at least a, sort of the, um, not flagship, but sort of, in this case, flagship applies. Yeah. You know, Tarnit uh, is our flagship character. It, it seemed was like a decision. A, it was a decision that. Opportunity that it wasn't taken advantage of earlier. Maybe. Exactly. If you look at heavy metal before 300, you, my God, I don't know if there was a Tarnit story ever in the magazine. There were a few Tarna covers. I don't think there was ever a Tarna story in the magazine. Mm. And there was a Tarna miniseries that did not complete publication. I don't know why it was before my time. Mm -hmm. um, but with this one, you know, in talks with Matthew Medney, CEO, and David Irwin, publisher and chief creative officer, yes, it was a conscious decision. Bring this character back. Put this character at the forefront. Whenever we have this character there's a level of importance, whether it's in the mythology of the character or the quality of the story, right? So when we brought Tarna back, we originally brought her back in issue 300, which was part of a two-part story that Butch Geist illustrated. Um, one of, I mean, still one of the highlights of my editorial career was working um, with Butch Geist on Birds of Prey. So when I came here to Heavy Metal and that was going to be the first story with this updated version of Tarna, Butch was the first person I called. And you, uh, you and uh, Fabrice need to work harder on getting more of his European work over to us because I know he's out there <laughs> generating a lot of European stuff nowadays. It's true. It's true. <laughs> oh my God. I, I, I love Butch's work. Um, yeah. So that, you know, that was in heavy metal 300 and 302. Um, which we've since collected in a one shot. Then we did the series that Stephanie Phillips wrote, which was six issues. And then Tarna is going to be coming back in the 45th anniversary issue this April in Heavy Metal 316. And then we're looking in in different ways in which we're going to, you know, keep Tarna as part of just like the soul and the architecture of the company, you know, and she is our flagship character. So when you came on board. Was there a learning curve of all the names and artists and stuff? Or, I mean, just throughout this conversation, I'm beginning to think maybe there wasn't because it sounds like you follow a lot of people and a lot of the Europeans and just new names because the creators on in the magazine, I mean, there's some familiar names for me, but there's other, you know, there's a whole continent and world of creators out there that I've never heard of, but sounds, you know, Heavy Metal Magazine is about bringing these guys, these creators into this one magazine and exposing the readers to, you know, mm -hmm. a whole new world. Was there a learning curve for you or were you perfect for it, it? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I wouldn't call it a learning curve because as you said, you know, I, I always follow the different artists, but I would call it a curve of experience in terms of, because again, we get so many different stories that it's like, wow, you are literally being exposed to artists who may have never been published in the North American space um, by virtue of their works never being in English 
or maybe what they're doing in heavy metal, that's their first published story. Yeah. Right. So that happened. I mean, listen, keeping up with all the names, it's a lot, but part of the fun of being the executive editor is some of these stories I'm editing directly. So I have relationships with these creators. Some of them I'm seeing from a larger view. So I'm learning about them. So it was a curve of experience. I would say this job exposes me to more new artists in a shorter amount of time than any job preceding it. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's definitely the case. Um, but still, you know, there was a combination of things. When you're talking about Juan Jimenez, Juan Jimenez is one of the godfathers, the fathers of heavy metal, literally. There is no heavy metal without Juan Jimenez, without Mobius, right? So being able to do segments, I mean, that was an honor and it was proper, right? It was proper. And especially, you know, in light of his past, his tragic passing. I mean, he um, he he passed away from COVID a few months after I had it. It It's damn tragic, right? Um, And then part of what I did was bringing in some creators from overseas who'd never been in heavy metal, but then they were just able to really do some cool work. Um, Diego Yapur and DC Alonzo, who are the artist colorist team on our Sun Eater series and our serial The Rise in the magazine. And they're represented by Butsido Agency. I had been wanting to work with Diego Yapur, I mean, back from the Valiant days. And this was just like the perfect opportunity to do it. Um, Al Barrio Nuevo, who did um, Act 3 of our Tarna series for us and is wrapping up our serial Savage Circus in the magazine. I loved his work from Detective Comics. Um, He and I worked together for a brief period of time when I was at Lion Forge, and I brought him on board to do the series Astonisher. And I just love how naturalistic his artwork looks. Like, he makes normal life look interesting, right? And And that's a skill. That's not automatic. Not a lot of artists can do that. I mean, obviously... You know, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, who is like the deity of making what we'll call ordinary life look just as interesting as the slam bang, right? Um, Butch Geist, who I mentioned before. So being able to have Al come in and Diego come in and being introduced to some new creators like um, Paolo Armitano, who does Swamp God, Ivan Chavrin, who does Star Wars, you know. I mean, it's just part of the fun, seeing all these different artists and their amazing work and being able to have any given issue of heavy metal be the smorgasbord of all these different styles. Yeah, and that's that's it. I mean, that's what it is. And I'm trying to, I was like thinking, do I ask you about, you know, we lost Juan Jimenez, uh, you know, and uh, also Richard Corbin yes, passed away. Yes, yes. You know, and heavy metal is responsible for Americans knowing about these guys. Um, it's, I don't know. It's like asking who's your favorite child is like, there's somebody there that are, who's going to fill those vacuums. And you don't know who's filling those vacuums until, you know, years later looking in hindsight, but you know, I don't know. Is there somebody you feel that like there's a new Richard Corbin coming about or, you know, Juan? Uh, I mean, that's really tough. I don't know if that's even a no, fair question. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough one. Well, so I don't think I it's think fair part, actually. You know? No, no. So, Here's part of the thing, right? And you're probably finding this too, is that part of the fun is 
those people you're going to discover tomorrow. You're going to discover them tomorrow, and in 15 years, they're going to be those new trailblazers, uh-huh. right? Um, in terms of artists that we're working with now, I do have to say I think Diego Yapur is a beast. Um, um, you know, there's an artist we also worked with on Tarna named Christian Rosado, who is amazing. It's like, you know, when I looked at Christian Rosado, um, myself and the publisher, you know, who had made us think of, and this is someone whom Christian admires, and this is someone who we recently lost, which was John Paul Young. Oh, yeah. You know, when we saw his work, we immediately, it immediately gave us that feeling. And so having him do act two of our Tarna series, you know, that was just, that was just, it was just an amazing experience, right? And um, so, yeah, we don't know who are going to be those next legends. But one thing I love about this industry is there's so much good art out there, right? There really is. Part of the reason why it's hard to decide who's going to lead the way is because there's just so many options. Yeah. How do you work through your options? I mean, I we before... You know, we've been on for 90 minutes, so I, I want to let you have your weekend back. Okay. But I just, two questions is sure. like, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, when I open up a issue of, you know, heavy metal, there's so much going on. And that's the appeal is that, you know, it's just, and that's why I like anthologies. And like, once again, why am I not reading this? And I am reading and I'm enjoying it a great deal because it's just all these options as an editor. And this goes back to the anthology and all the work that you have in front of you. And, you know, how do you pick the options? Do you, and do you ever question your decisions or you, you know, on a monthly schedule, you just, it's like a baseball, you, you got to go on to the next game. You just make the decision and you learn from it. I mean, how yeah. do you, that mind frame you have of, you know, am I making the right call? for the survival of this magazine right no 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 it's um it's a heavy responsibility um and again you know the nature of our company is we're pretty collaborative so you know while i run editorial you know i don't have a mentality of making a decision in a vacuum you know talk to you know talk to chris longo who's our associate publisher and chief sales officer talk to david Irwin, who's our publisher and chief creative officer you know, just get different. Hey, what do you think of this person? What do you think of that person? I can tell you that um, we have a new series coming out written by Christopher Priest called Entropy. It's going to be our big summer event. It took half a year to find the artist for that. Mm. Half a year. And it's worth it to wait for the right artist. If you have the freedom to do so. <laughs> if you're dealing with I mean, my God. So Ben Abernathy, who's a Batman group better, is a friend of mine. Like, what he and his team do is amazing, right? The Batman universe keeps going, don't miss a beat. But that must be extremely difficult, right? You know, whereas with this Christopher Priest series, there's some time. There's time to say, okay, I don't need to find an artist in three weeks. It takes three months. It's going to take three months because when it comes out, it's going to be great. 
It took six months to find this person. But when we found him and the pages started coming in, we knew it was the right decision, right? So the, the choosing always comes to quality and who is the right fit? Who is the right partner, right? Because no two stories are alike and there are very few artists that can do anything, right? People, strengths lend themselves to certain stories and also writers, you know, as, as, as a writer, you know, and this is something that I've thought about because funny enough, you mentioned humanoids and I wrote a graphic novel for oh, humanoids, yeah. yep. you know, so that was, that was kind of fun, like working at heavy metal and <laughs> writing for the, for the sister company. Oh, well, what was that? Uh, it was in many, it takes place. It's the rock and roll. Yeah. Like, it was called MPLS sound. Okay. And it took place during eighties, Minneapolis. And, you know, in that situation, it's like, as a writer, you want to work to the strengths of an artist. So before I even started working on, you know, my version of the script, um, Fabrice, who was the editor at the time, and I got on a Zoom call with um, Meredith Laxton, who's the artist. And I just asked some basic questions like, hey, what do you like to draw? Like, what, like what parts of story interest you, you know? And so it's very important to work with writers that you know will be collaborators with the artists and will say, hey, you know, let me write to your strengths. Let me make you part of the process, you know? So that's what it is, right? It's knowing who the right participants are and then really fitting them best with the right stories. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not easy. Sometimes you'll get it like that and sometimes it's gonna take a while. Is there, I guess, one last question? I sure. might've covered this, I don't know. Seeing you're in charge, you get it. You have some control over your universe at heavy metal. Is there something, uh, you know, there's three genres that you deal with. Is there something within those three genres that you would like to really get, I mean, uh, like to see more of in heavy metal or have plans for more of uh, within? I would definitely like us to do more romance. Ah. Yeah, I would, I would love to see more romance. I feel like, it's um, a genre that everyone's asking to see more of. Um, <laughs> and I, I feel like the great thing about romance is romance is a genre which then fits inside any other genre, yeah. right? So I would love to see more fantasy romance, you know, and explore what that means. Um, you know, one thing about the serial we're doing, Star Wars, with Steve Orlando and Ivan Chavrin, is that's really heavy metal's foray into the young adult story world, right? So, but there's something very distinctive about Star Wars that wouldn't be the kind of why story that you would find anywhere else. So exploring those kinds of themes more, right? Um, I'd like to see us do more of that. So, you know... Any creators with any great ideas for a romance story in science fiction, fantasy, or horror, you can find me. I would love, <laughs> I would love, I would love to do more of that. And it's a genre that, you know, comics has a, a decent history with, too. And absolutely. I thought, you know, like one thing when I was running my small, you know, comedy or even romance, it, it can fit anywhere on any planet at any time with anything else. You know, but it seems like the industry at times never really 
doesn't take advantage of what's there that's available that might actually, you know, and people touch upon it. I know some people have tried to do some romance books and they seem to be Mm -hmm. interesting, but they're just one-offs, you know, and they're they're great takes too. They're really unique takes, but it doesn't, nobody comes back to it for some reason. Yeah. And let's do, and let's explore that more because, you know, a lot of the stories, no matter what genre they're in, romance is somewhere at the core. I mean, Tom King used romance to ignite Batman, mm-hmm. right? His Batman is the tragic story of Bruce and Selina, right? It's romance at the core. A number of, you know, seminal superhero genre stories are romance stories, right? And so exploring that more would be really great. And exploring that across people from different backgrounds, interspecies, you know, I mean, that's a thing because we're not really dealing with corporate icons that are almost a century old. We have more flexibility to explore a genre like that. And that's part of the fun. Yeah, the wild idea that heavy metal started out with, you know, the wild ideas are, you know, that's still an element that you guys take advantage of, you know. Exactly. You know, exactly. Great. Well, there you go. Well, that's right. <laughs> great. Thank you. That's a great answer. I was a little wondering if I'm thinking, okay. Well, hey, Joe, I'm going to let you have your weekend. So. All right. All right. I appreciate it, but it's been great right. ending this work weekend with you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, it's a, thank you very much for staying and giving, you know, like an hour and a half of your day. So I uh, really appreciate it. So, no, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Francis. You're welcome.